one of, if not the, distinguishing features of human beings that sets us apart from all other animate life and the animal kingdom is that we pray. We're aware, or at very least speculate, that there is someone beyond us and greater than us whom we call God. And at times in our lives, we attempt to make communication with this person, to speak to him, or it, or her, or whatever people imagine. We call this communication prayer. Most people pray when they're in need, when our own resources are inadequate or exhausted, in the hope that God can and will answer prayer. I am almost certain that everyone here, whoever you are, even if you've walked in up the street, never been to a church in your life, at some point or other, have uttered that kind of prayer. It's the popular view of prayer, which you can define as human beings speaking to God in order to persuade Him to do what we want. And when we pray like that, I guess also some of us can look back and say, yes, I've prayed like that, and there have been occasions when that kind of prayer has been answered. There have been other occasions when it hasn't. If it's not answered, that kind of prayer, we draw one of two conclusions. Either God wasn't able to do what I asked, he didn't have the capacity, or maybe he doesn't exist at all, or God wasn't willing to do what I asked. And when that happens, some people are quite upset by it. They have the kind of attitude, God, I've never bothered you about anything much before. Surely I must be in credit in the bank of heaven, so why didn't you do what I asked? Other people are not quite so sure. And they say, when they pray, and that's why they pray this way, God, I'm, I'm sorry that I've ignored you in the past, but if you answer my prayer, I promise you that I will fill in the blanks. Give to charity, go to church every week, be a good person, whatever it may be. However, the fundamental problem with this approach to prayer, that is human beings speaking to God in order to persuade him to do what we want, is that it places the initiative in the wrong place. On us and not God. The problem with us being the initiators of prayer is that we are human beings and not God. We don't have anything like the facts needed that we can take into account when we make these requests. We all know from Childhood days, we were all taught the story of King Midas. You know the guy who asked, was granted a wish and he said, the idiot, you know, grant that anything I touch will turn into gold. We know he's going to run into problems before he hugs his favourite daughter. Yet we pray to God and say, Lord, please give me this marriage, this home, this job, this car, and think we know better than King Midas. And not only are we human beings and not God, we are also fallen human beings. Because our first parents, in a foolish attempted coup d'etat, attempted to become like God, knowing good and evil. So our prayer requests are not only limited, because we don't have all the facts, they're also flawed, because we ask for the wrong things, and with the wrong motives. Now one term which describes this, predisposition, is the word prejudice. My dictionary defines prejudice as an opinion 
form beforehand, especially an unfavorable one based on inadequate facts. And in this broad sense, therefore, all of us, whoever we are, are prejudiced. So if this is the case, what can we do about it, especially in respect of prayer? Answer, nothing. Because we're all prejudiced. And there we would stay, and there most people stay, unaware that this is a problem. They have a kind of unwritten code in their lives. There are two opinions, mine and the wrong one. Fortunately for the human race, God, is, God, the one who has all the facts and is totally unprejudiced, a God who is, the Bible says, without injustice, has not left us there. He takes the initiative and speaks to us in order to persuade us to do his will. That which is not only right, but is in actual fact, although we don't like it, the best thing for us. So from this perspective, prayer is not human beings speaking to God in order to persuade him to do what we want. Rather, it is God speaking to human beings in order to persuade us to do what he wants. The proper view of prayer then is God speaking to human beings in order to persuade us to do his will. And when we begin to understand that will, then we begin to pray ourselves according to God's will. So Jesus said, when his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray, he said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today in our series then, drawn from the New Testament book of Acts, the church that prayed, we're looking at this subject under the title Prayer and Prejudice. And it's from Acts 10, which the children read for us. And it will help to have the Bible open in front of you. It's page 1103. If you haven't got a Bible, that's okay. There are Bibles in the pew. Just turn around and get one. It is important that we look at the passage together. I'm not going to read it again. I hope you could hear what the children were reading. (coughs) But we will refer to it as we go along. Now, in this chapter, Acts chapter 10, we have the record of two men praying. And they're very different, as Pip said to the, as early with the children. One was a devout Roman centurion. The other was a Jewish Christian leader. In neither case do we know what they said, what they prayed. What we do know is that God spoke dramatically to them and changed the course of their lives and through this changed the course of history. And should you be sitting there and thinking, well, this is just a story that happened 2,000 years ago. It has no relevance to me. Let me put it this way. It was because of this event that you and I, most of us, were not Jews, are here worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. It is that important. So let's look at them each in turn. I suspect that all of us here fall into one of these two categories described here in this passage, these two men. So first of all, we have Cornelius, who you could describe as the sincere seeker. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, who's a very good historian, introduces us to Cornelius, a Roman centurion based in the port of Caesarea, which was the provincial capital on the coast of the province of Judea. A centurion was a non-commissioned officer, roughly equivalent to a captain today, who had worked his way through the ranks and was responsible for a group of soldiers. Not a hundred, as most people think, usually 600, but at least 300 within a Roman legion. 
However, in the case of Captain Cornelius, the point Luke emphasizes is not his military skills or his position of responsibility, but his character and piety. Look what he says in verse 2. Cornelius and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. He was what we might call a sincere seeker. Someone who was dissatisfied with the old gods and religion of the Roman Empire and had been attracted by the simple monotheism of the Jewish faith where he had been posted. How far his search had taken him, we're not absolutely certain, but he was certainly not a fully-fledged Jew. That is, he'd not become a proselyte by being circumcised. Now, I want to say that I think there are many people like Cornelius around in our society today. People who try to live by a moral code, people who teach their families what they believe is right and wrong, and often give very generously to those in need and to appeals for charity, for example. Some of them may follow a particular religion, many of them do not. I would say, in all honesty, that the piety of your average Muslim, for example, usually exceeds that of the average of the 70% of British people who classified themselves as Christian in the recent census. Others may have no formal faith, but live by a kind of moral code. And behind it all, place within us, like a burr in your shoe, by God, is the search for God, to know God. And you find it in the most unexpected of places. The Canadian writer, for example, Douglas Coupland, who, who coined in his, one of his early books the term Generation X. It was called Generation X. He wrote an interesting, he's still writing, he was in the festival this, uh, last, this summer, I think. Um, he wrote a book after that called Life After God, interesting title. And in it, he makes a very surprising confession. Let me read it. I've read it once, one evening, I think, but it's worth hearing again. It's what he says, right? Now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again, so I pray that you're in a quiet room when you hear these words. My secret is that I need God that I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me to give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind, as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. And there are people like that in our society. You probably work with them. They live in your street. The most unlikely people. Maybe you're one of them here this morning. And you wonder what this kind of weird service is and what's going on. I simply want to say that God knows that. He's placed that search within you. How will a Douglas Coupland then or a Cornelius find out about God? Only if God finds him and directs him to the God-given means by which he has chosen to make himself known. So here's Cornelius. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the prescribed time for prayer. And he goes up to, and he kneels down or stands or whatever he did in those days. Most people stood to pray, but maybe he kneels. Maybe he prostrates himself on the ground. And he's praying, and God steps into his life and speaks directly to him. He has a vision in which, notice the words in verse 3, he distinctly sees an angel of God who addresses him by name. Cornelius, hard-bitten soldier though he is, is absolutely petrified. What is it, Lord, he says, and the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. This is verse 4. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
as a soldier, Cornelius is used to obeying orders and giving them. He immediately calls in one of his trusted soldiers, who's also a devout man, a seeker after God, and with two servants, he says, right, son, off you go, straight away to Joppa. There's a guy there staying with a man called Simon the Tanner. His name is also Simon, but he's called Peter. Find him, bring him. Now, notice two things. First of all, piety is a help, but it isn't enough. God had heard the prayers of Cornelius. He'd seen his gifts to the poor. They reflected the heart of a man who was genuinely seeking after God. But they were not enough to bring the man to salvation. He needed more information. Information about Jesus, God's Son, come to earth to save his people and bring people back to God. And I want to say to you, so do you. Maybe you're on a search for God. And it's brought you here to Charlotte Chapel this morning. And God knows about your heart. He knows about your search for Him. You're longing to know Him. But your search is not enough. You need more information. But notice the second thing, which is even more surprising. An angel is not enough. So help. Not enough. Surely the angel could have done a perfectly good job of telling Cornelius about Jesus. Probably a better job than anybody else could have done. Maybe a more persuasive job. But although angels have many duties to perform on behalf of God, preaching the good news about Jesus is not one of them. That privilege, that privilege is reserved for human beings. A human messenger is needed. And I hope you see where this is taking you if you're not a Cornelius who's seeking God, but someone who God has found. Because you've got an incredible responsibility. God has not chosen to tell your next door neighbor about Jesus through an angel. He's chosen to tell your fellow student about Jesus through a human messenger, and you may be the one that is expected to answer and respond. And that is why Cornelius is told by the angel, not believe in Jesus, says, Cornelius, you need more information about a man called Jesus. You need more information. Didn't he even say what he said? He said, so send for a man called Simon Peter who's living in Joppa at the moment, staying with a guy called Simon the Tanner, and he'll tell you. Now, here's the second prayer and the second problem and this is an even bigger problem the problem is that God has sent Cornelius his servants to Peter the difficult problem is going to be persuading Peter to accept them and be the person who will tell the story so here's the second person we turn from uh, Cornelius the sincere seeker to Peter who I would call the prejudiced preacher We've used the word prejudice to describe Cornelius in its broadest sense, someone who lacks information. Peter is prejudiced in the narrower sense. My dictionary again says prejudice, third definition. Intolerance of or disliking for people of a specific race or religion, etc. Peter was by birth and upbringing a Jew. And as Jews knew and Gentiles also knew to their cost, Jews had no dealings with Gentiles. Well, strictly speaking, I mean they had dealings with them in order to trade with them and uh, make a profit from them. 
But in terms of social interaction, Jews, no Orthodox Jew would ever dream of entering the home of a Gentile, inviting a Gentile into his home, or sitting down and sharing a meal with a Gentile. These rules, in fact, were not laid down in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. In fact, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, said that God would call his people Israel through Abraham, the founder of Israel, and that through Abraham, all people on earth would be blessed. Unfortunately, the Jews forgot about that. John Stock comments, the tragedy was that Israel had twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, become filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. Now, the Peter in this story, this Simon Peter who's staying with Simon the Tanner, is a Jew, maybe not a strict one, but nonetheless someone who would not flout the rules about mixing with Gentiles. Peter was prejudiced against Gentiles. However, this man Peter was also a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, who had not followed these rules. In fact, on one remarkable occasion, he had commended the faith of another Gentile centurion, a Roman centurion, and he had commented, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith, and then he said, I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Peter had been there when Jesus said that. But he was still prejudiced against Gentiles. Moreover, this same Peter, at the end of the life of Jesus, when he'd risen from the dead, had been there when Jesus had commissioned his followers and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you till the end of the age. And this same Peter had been baptized with power by the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise of Jesus when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And recently, with some great reluctance, Peter had visited Samaria the next door province, inhabited by people that the Jews thought were half-breeds and heretics, and had witnessed the conversion of many Samaritans. But he was still prejudiced against Gentiles. Can you see that God is taking this man on a journey to try and destroy his prejudice? It was one thing to preach even to Samaritans who had at least some knowledge of the Jewish faith and claimed to be Jews. It was quite another thing to preach to Gentiles who had little or none. And that is why, so far, in the history of the expansion of the church, Peter and his fellow apostles had not progressed beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria. But that wasn't God's plan. How was God going to get this church out of Jerusalem, out of comfort zone, to the ends of the earth? Well, God had got a plan in mind. And it involved a Roman centurion called Cornelius, and the leader of the church, a Jew, called Peter who was on a journey at the present time, staying in the port of Joppa. don't have time to talk about it, but Joppa is an interesting place. It was a famous place on the coast. You can see it if you can see the map on the screen. Joppa was a place where another very reluctant Jewish missionary set out on a port to go in the opposite direction that God wanted him to go because he didn't want to preach to Gentiles. His name was Jonah. Yeah, the guy was swallowed by the big fish. 
And I tell you this, if Peter had been in Jerusalem when Cornelius' message arrived, he would never have gone back with him. He'd have called the church council and they'd probably still be there discussing what the implications were. So, the messengers from Cornelius set out. It's, it's about 30 miles from Caesarea to Joppa. And the next day, they're approaching the city about noon. If they arrive at the door of Simon the Tanner and ask for Simon Peter, they will be left standing out in the street at best with a brief conversation. So, what is God going to do to change Peter's mind so that he is prepared to listen to what has happened to Cornelius? Well, the answer is, by prayer. So Peter is praying at noon. He goes on the flat roof of the house, probably to get away somewhere quiet. Also on the flat roof of the house, the sea breezes from the Mediterranean would waft in. It was probably a lot cooler. Those of us who have lived in these parts of the world with flat roofs know that it's a great place to go up and get a bit of peace and quiet and also a bit of cool. And he's hungry. And he's waiting for the food to be prepared. And while he is waiting he falls into a trance in which he sees like a sheet coming down from heaven. Some have suggested this was prompted by an awning that Peter was sitting on on the roof or that he was looking out to sea and he saw the sail of a boat and it kind of... There are ways that God uses circumstances like being hungry and sails and awnings but that's not the important point of the story. Whatever the case, it is a God-given vision in which he sees as his sheet comes down from heaven it's full of animals. But they're a mixture of animals, clean and unclean animals, classified by the Jewish law that Pitt mentioned in, in Leviticus chapter 11. And he hears a voice saying, Peter, get up and kill and eat. Now notice Peter's answer, verse 14. Surely not, Lord, he said. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. He addresses the speaker as Lord. He recognises it's the voice of God. Almost certainly he recognises it's the voice of the Lord Jesus speaking to him. One that he knew very well. Such a thing is repugnant to him. But the voice from heaven, the Lord answers, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Then the sheep goes up, and he's sitting there, still in the trance, comes down a second time. Same thing happens again. Third time, same thing happens again. The sheep is pulled up to heaven. What does it mean? What is God saying to him? As he sits there, struggling to understand, at this very moment... By coincidence, no, no, by providence, the three men from the house of Cornelius arrive at the door. And they knock on the door and they shout, Is there a Simon Peter living here? Is there a Simon Peter in the house? Peter doesn't know about this. He's still engrossed in his thoughts and his trance. When he is formed, informed by the Holy Spirit, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So verse 21, Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? This is almost humorous. Here's Peter, the spirit-filled apostle of the church, asking three Gentiles, look guys, do you know what's going on here? They explained what has happened to Cornelius? And Peter, the penny begins to drop. The light begins to dawn. Although he doesn't understand yet the full implications. For we read that, and you can skip over it and think nothing of it. He invited the men into the house to be his guests. Totally unthinkable. Thirty minutes before, they'd been left standing in the street. Peter's 
thinking is changed, his behaviour is changed as he invites the men into the house to be his guests. Now, what is this story all about as we sit here today? It is about, it is a story of two conversions. The first conversion is the conversion of Peter. When Peter arrives finally at Caesarea the next day, he discovers that Cornelius has gathered a large crowd of his family and friends. This is one thing you discover with sincere seekers. They talk to other sincere seekers. And if we can resist the temptation when they become Christians to suck them into all our activities so they lose all these contacts with sincere seekers, they can have a profound effect. Never has a preacher had a more captive audience. Notice the first thing Peter says, verse 28. You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? Peter has been converted. His thinking has been changed. He now realises that Jews and Gentiles alike are alike in the eyes of God. And when Cornelius has explained what has happened to him, he concludes by saying, verse 33, So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter responds, key verse, verse 34, Now I realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. He realises that God has no favourites. And so he goes on to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius and here he is winding up his sermon as I will be doing in just a little while but a bit longer than Peter. All the prophets testify about Jesus, him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He's concluding his sermon. He says, everyone. And there's an immediate response from these seekers in faith. Because as he speaks, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They begin to speak in tongues and praise God, just like it happened to the apostles in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. So Peter realises, not only that Gentiles can become Christians, but even more radically, Gentiles can become Christians without becoming Jews first. Which is why he orders that they're to be baptised immediately. (laughs) What can we do, he says. We must baptise them. They don't need to go through Jewish catechism and get circumcised and follow all our laws. Now this may seem passe to most of us, but it was incredibly controversial. I say to you without hesitation, this is one of the key turning points in salvation history and God's plan for the world, which is why Luke gives so much time and attention to it, which is why... God spends so much time unmistakably telling everyone, this is my plan. That's why there are six people go with Peter. Because when he appears in the next chapter before the church in Jerusalem, they're not at all convinced. That's why he tells us all the details. Unmistakable evidence. Now, while this may not be a particular issue for us, if we're going to respond to seekers like Cornelius, and bring them into our churches, we need to make sure that we're bringing them to faith in Christ, not to some particular culture that we've adopted as a particular church in a particular place. Because the gospel is transcultural. It plants itself in every culture in the world. 
many of you are here from different countries. I've lived and worked on three continents. When you worship in a village in Nigeria, as I've done, the way that we worship is totally different to the way that we worship in Charlotte Chapel. I don't expect them to sing the kind of hymns we sing, to sit in pews like we do. But the problem is it's very hard for us to separate what is our culture and what is the way that we do things and the way that we expect everyone else to do things. And sometimes we're in great danger asking people to jump through hoops that are man-made ones rather than just believing in Jesus and working that out in their own culture. Don't have time to develop that, but you need to think about it if you're having roast preacher for lunch, put that on the agenda. Now secondly, we're getting there almost. The second conversion is the conversion of Cornelius and his family and friends. The seeker needs to hear about Jesus, needs to hear the gospel. If you are a sincere seeker here in Charlotte Chapel this morning, or you listen to this on tape or whatever it may be, or you're listening on the internet, many people are doing that nowadays, it's a good way of listening to messages. Whatever your background, race or creed, this good news is good news for you. That's what Christmas is about. Behold, I bring you good news, a great joy for all people. For you is born this day in the city of David, a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And Peter concludes by saying, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins in his name. It still stands. The promise of the Holy Spirit. As you are listening, you can respond in faith to this message and God will fill you with his Spirit. Wow. Amazing. Maybe you're here today for that. But in order for that to happen, Someone must be sensitive to God's voice and respond to his call to go and tell Cornelius and his friends the good news about Jesus. And we Christians need to leave our Jerusalem. We need to get out of our comfort zones and engage with the world of seekers and tell them about Jesus. Because it's unlikely that most people are going to walk in off the street into Charlotte Chapel on a Sunday morning. We should still invite them and encourage them, put on programs and try and get them to come in, business, carol services, whatever it might be. But your average guy who's up the road in the clubs on Lothian Road is not going to walk in the doors of this church, so someone's got to engage somewhere. There's got to be an intersection between their life and lifestyle and yours somewhere. And we're the ones who are going to have to make the transition to go and tell. The seeker needs an unprejudiced preacher an unprejudiced preacher who sees what God is doing and how God is working in our world today. That's the challenge for most of us who claim to know Christ, to be filled with His Spirit, to be His ambassadors. Now this is the last bit. A final question. Does God still meet with people in prayer in unexpected and dramatic ways like we read in the book of Acts or is this all sort of, you know, a history that concluded a couple of thousand years ago? I want to say, quite emphatically, I believe the answer is yes, where that is necessary to convince the people concerned and where there are big issues at stake. So let me tell you something that I received from a reliable source this week in an email about a people group, and because of security, I will not even tell you the continent where it is. But the people concerned live across the borders of three countries in the world. A local pastor, one of their own people, has been working there for 20 years, trying to share what it means to be 
a Christian and offering out the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area where the religion, the local religion is powerful and dominant. And this is what he reports. Scores of people are coming to him and they've all had a vision. And the vision in every case is the same. It's a vision of someone who they identify and know without being told is Jesus. And in the vision, this figure is flying across the ground, six feet above the ground, and he's got a book in his hand. And on the book, on the front, even children who can't read know that it says Jesus. And this pastor reports, in this one town alone, there are scores of people coming. The local radio station, run by the local dominant religion, has asked him to speak every Sunday, free of charge, for an hour about Jesus. And when I tell you that story, what do you think? You think, God, that's just ridiculous. What does it mean? Here's what it means. After 20 years, the New Testament has just been translated into this particular language. It's just been printed. And next year, it's going to be available in that community. What is God doing? He's preparing a people group to hear his word. And nothing other than that would persuade them. Could persuade them. The missionaries worked there for 20 years. It's done all he can. But God is in faith. God is speaking to these people. And I tell you this, when the New Testament comes to that community, they'll be waiting with open arms. So what we've heard about, this is what the vision was about. Isn't that fantastic? Amazing? God is still working today in these remarkable ways to bring people to himself. What we need to pray is that the people will learn to read. If they can't read, they won't understand the book. We need to pray for communities like that. That God is opening up the way. And if you've got your ear to the ground... It's not talking about much of this kind of thing because it doesn't help the people concerned. That's why I've not even told you where it is. But God is working in some remarkable ways. In areas where the religion is dominantly anti-Christian, where there is no entrance from the gospel, people are having dreams and visions about Jesus. Going into churches and saying, tell us more. What's it about? God is still at work. It's got his plan. Saving plan for all nations. Question is, are we available? Ready? Sensitive this week to that question that someone will ask you at work. Colin, a seeker looking for a saviour. Are you available? Listening? That's the challenge. Which I leave with you today. You need to work through some of the implications. We've already gone on far too long, but it's important to hear what God is saying to us today, individually and as a church. Let's just pray and then we'll sing a hymn and go home.